Hey friends, we are in Kings, and we're going to do the second two-thirds of 1 Kings 8, and I'm going to jump right into it. It's a longer section, and it's Solomon's prayer after, uh, when God, well, sorry, when he is dedicating the temple to the Lord. Verse 22, Then Solomon stood before the altar of the Lord in the presence of all the assembly of Israel and spread out his hands towards heaven. Again, another like priestly posture. And said, O Lord, God of Israel, there is no God like you in heaven above or on earth beneath, keeping covenant and showing steadfast love to your servants who walk before you with all their heart. You have kept with your servant David, my father, what you declared to him and spoke with your mouth and with your hand you have fulfilled this day. Now therefore, O Lord, God of Israel, keep for your servant David, my father, what you've promised him, saying, You shall not lack a man to sit before me on the throne of Israel. If only your sons pay close attention to their way to walk before me as you have walked before me. Now, therefore, O God of Israel, let your word be confirmed, which you have spoken to your servant, David, my father. So his prayer starts off with this confession of God's faithfulness, that he has been faithful, and that Solomon is looking for him to continue to be faithful, specifically in establishing the kingship, which is really what the book of Kings is about. It's about the failure of the kingship to live up to this promise, but God's faithfulness to his promise to David, even in the midst of the failure of the line. The northern kingdom, which separates uh, in the days of Rehoboam after Solomon, is just unfaithful pretty much all the time. The southern kingdom, which is the Davidic line, David's descendants have good kings and bad kings, but ultimately um, Israel is plundered by the Babylonians. But this is his prayer, that God would be as faithful to the promises of David as he has been up to this point, establishing a king and creating a temple. And now he's going to start to pray for mercy. And so even with God's faithfulness here, Solomon has a good sense that this all depends on grace, on God's forgiveness and him doing what people don't deserve. So next he says this, verse 27. But will God indeed dwell on the earth? Behold, heaven in the highest heaven cannot contain you, much less this house that I have built. Okay, so he starts there, and he just, he's speaking about the doctrine of God's omnipresence here, that you can't build a house big enough for God to dwell in, because God is bigger than all of his own creation, heaven and the highest heaven, both the physical realm and the spiritual realm can't contain God. He's omnipresent. He's omni-expansive. So he's just confessing that truth, that he doesn't believe he's built a house that God is limited to or stuck in. And this is good because it means he's going to be talking about prayer a lot. And so part of the confession is that God is everywhere his servants are praying to him. He's not stuck in a temple where people actually need to get to the temple for God to hear their prayers. However, God has given this physical location on the earth as a means of grace for people to uh, identify and know that God is present with them. God is spirit, but he's not against the material world. And so by building the tabernacle at God's command, he is creating this material place that speaks to spiritual reality that God is present with his people. But Solomon also wants to remind us that you can't build anything big enough to contain God. Verse 28. Yet have regard to the prayer of your servant and to his plead, O Lord my God, listening to the cry and to the prayer that your servant prays before you this day, that your eyes may be open night and day towards this house, the place of which you have said my name shall be there. 
that you may listen to the prayer of your servant offer the servant offers towards this place so the way solomon thinks about it is he doesn't say this temple contains you but god's put his name there and his name is himself and his name uh, indicates his presence his relationship with his people through covenant this will remind us of when god gave moses his name before he rescued the people from israel naming himself yahweh or the lord Verse 30, and listen to the plea of your servant and of your people Israel when they pray towards this place and listen in heaven, your dwelling place, when you hear, forgive. So Solomon, as he dedicates this temple, is really dedicating it as a house of prayer, which is good. This is when Jesus went to the temple and it was full of business. He kicked the people out and he said, the prophet said that my house will be a house of prayer. And Solomon's starting off the temple as a house of prayer. The temple can't contain you, but it's the place where people pray to you and find forgiveness, find grace. Verse 31. If a man sins against his neighbor and is made to take an oath and comes and swears his oath before your altar in this house, then hear in heaven and act and judge your servants, condemning the guilty by bringing his conduct on his own head and vindicating the righteous by rewarding him according to his righteousness. So this is the first prayer, and every prayer is a need. And everybody needs justice. We live in a broken world where people can wrong each other. And this first prayer that Solomon asks the Lord to hear is the prayer for God to be a God of uh, justice, of, of um, is it the word Shabbat? Um, I, I forget. The, the God, it's God's justice where he makes things right. He intervenes in the world to make things right. And so this is a common prayer for all of us. We feel like we've been wronged and we need God to reveal who is wrong so that there can be justice. This is the first thing that Solomon asks God to be attentive towards. And as I read this, there's almost this kind of outward progression from from Israel outwards to the nations. And so maybe you'll agree with me as we go through this. But this is the first one. If Israelites have a need justice, give justice. And this emphasizes God's kingly role. Uh, the king was the highest court in the land and it's almost like the great king solomon is saying there's a greater king who gives justice and that this is his house where you would come for justice 33 when your people israel are defeated before the enemy because they've sinned against you and if they turn again to you and acknowledge your name and pray and plead with you in this house then hear in heaven and forgive the sins of your people israel and bring them again to the land that you you gave to their fathers so it's movement from individual justice issues to corporate justice issues where Israel is experiencing defeat from the nations around them because they have sinned against God. And we have a bit of a premonition here or foreshadowing of the exile, which is going to get picked up later on in a longer prayer in the same chapter. Verse 35, when heaven is shut up and there's no rain because you have they have sinned against you, they pray towards this place and acknowledge your name and turn from their sin when you afflict them. Then hear in heaven and forgive the sin of your servants, your people Israel, when you teach them the good way in which they should walk and grant rain upon your land, which you have given to your people as an inheritance. Okay, so here's the next issue. The first issue is personal justice. The second issue is defeat in war because of corporate justice. And now um, it's moving from kind of a horizontal problem to a vertical problem where now they're defeated by nature. Uh, because the, there's no rain and God is disciplining his people through withholding rain and this is going to come up remember the days of Elijah when the heavens are shut up for three years so this does happen and so the plea is when people are disciplined by you 
to show that they've sinned against you and wandered away from you, and they turn to you and ask for forgiveness, please hear, hear at your temple. If there's famine in the land, this is verse 37, if there's pestilence or blight or mildew or locust or caterpillar, if their enemies besiege them in the land at their gates, whatever plague, whatever sickness there is, whatever prayer, whatever plea is made by any man or by all your people Israel, each knowing the affliction of their own heart and stretching out their hands towards this house, then hear in heaven your dwelling place and forgive and act and render to each those whose heart you know, according to all his ways. For you, you only, know the hearts of all the children of mankind, that they may fear you all the days that they live in the land um, that you gave to our fathers. So this is an interesting prayer. It starts off by talking about famine and pestilence, all the bad things, but then it moves into this uh, very personal acknowledgement that God is in the business of wanting to discipline, disciple, and forgive human hearts. So before it was talking corporately, and now it's going like, actually, these are about heart issues. And God, you can bring trouble because you have individual hearts that you want to um, work with and discipline those you love and teach people to fear you so that they can uh, live in the land of blessing, the land of their fathers. And so here's this very expansive one that includes many kinds of sicknesses as well as defeat or being attacked by enemies. But now he's... Um, talking about this as a heart issue, but people are, when they're in trouble, are going to want to turn to God at the temple in prayer, and he's pleading that God would act there. Verse 41, so a movement from the people of Israel now to foreigners. Likewise, when a foreigner who is not of your people Israel comes from a far country for your name's sake, for they shall hear of your great name and your mighty hand and of your outstretched arm, when he comes and prays towards this house here in heaven, your dwelling place, and do according to them, Sorry, according to all for which the foreigner calls to you, in order that all the peoples of the earth may know your name and fear you, as do your people Israel, and that they may know that this house that I've built is called by your name. So again, now Solomon has a bit of an evangelistic and missional idea. He's expecting that as God works is himself and works wonders, that the nations will hear and want to come to this house to worship God and to offer their own prayers to him. And this reminds me like of the Queen of Sheba that we're going to read about in a chapter or two. And he's saying, hey, when foreigners hear of your namesake, uh, hear their prayers for your namesake. And again, the name of God is, is addressed here. This is God's reputation, his presence, his character being known. Uh, this is about his glory going out and people wanting to respond by coming to worship and offer prayers. Verse 44, if your people go to battle against their enemy, by whatever way you shall send them, and they pray to the Lord towards the city that you have chosen and the house that I have built for your name, then hear in heaven their prayer and their plea and maintain their cause. So again, Solomon is trying to deal with this uh, material location and spiritual omnipresence aspect of the Lord. He keeps reminding the people that God is actually dwelling in heaven. And even if the people of God go away for battle and travel far away, they're not far away from God. And they may, um, in prayer, turn towards the direction of the temple as a way of physically turning towards God in prayer. But the reminder is that you don't have to be at the temple to be heard by the God whose name is at this temple. And there's this outwards movement. Like I said before, it starts with kind of personal justice in the presence of the king. And then it's gone outwards to foreigners coming. And now it's God's people are in foreign locations in war. And then verse 46, if they sin against you, for there's no one who does not sin. Again, so there is Solomon uh, teaching original sin and the fallenness of the human heart there. 
uh, that there is no such thing as a completely sinless person until the arrival of the Lord Jesus Christ. If they sin against you, for there is no one who does not sin, and you are angry with them and give them to an enemy, so that they are carried away captive to the land of their enemy, far off or near, yet if they turn their heart in the land to which they have been carried captive, and repent and plead with you in the land of their captives, saying, We have sinned and acted perversely and wickedly, if they repent with all their heart and with all their soul in the land of their enemies, who carry them captive, and pray to you towards the land which you gave to their fathers, the city that you have chosen, and the house that I have built for your name, then hear in heaven your dwelling place, their prayers and their plea, and maintain their cause, and forgive your people who have sinned against you and all their transgressions that they have committed against you, and grant them compassion in the sight of those who have carried them captive. This is actually just a prayer, and this is the longest section, and it's like foreshadowing the exile where they are going to do this. They're going to be carried away, and they're going to pray for compassion, and they're going to get favor. Sorry, end of verse 50, that you may have compassion on them, or that they may have compassion on them, for they are your people and your heritage, which you brought out of Egypt from the midst of the iron furnace. Let your eyes be open to the plea of your servant and to the plea of your people Israel, giving ear to them whenever they call to you. For you separated them from among all the peoples of the earth to be your heritage, as you declared through Moses your servant when you brought out the fathers, our fathers out of Egypt, O Lord God. So that's the end of the prayer, and he's addressing the future exile, or the possibility of exile, which was warned in the law of Moses that this could happen, and I think God even prophesied it would happen. And so Solomon is saying, hey, um, may this house, if people are know that they, you are angry with them because you've separated them from the land you gave them, from Israel, from Jerusalem, and from this house, and they plead with you, may you hear their pre plea for compassion and forgiveness and bring them back home because you started this because you chose them and you've been faithful thus far and forgiving thus far and may you continue to be that way and that's i think the heart of the prayer god we've built this house we don't think it makes us great please forgive our sins and make your name great i think that's a summary of that prayer 54 prayers over now solomon finished all his prayers and pleased to the lord he arose from before the altar of the lord where he had knelt with hands outstretched towards heaven and he stood and blessed all the assembly of Israel with a loud voice, saying, Blessed be the Lord, who has given rest to his people Israel, according to all that he promised. Not one word has failed of all his good promise, which he spoke by Moses his servant. The Lord our God be with us, as he is with, was with our fathers. May he not leave us or forsake us, for he may incline our hearts towards him, to walk in all his ways, and to keep his commands, his statutes, and his rules, that he commanded our fathers. Let these words of mine with which I have pleaded before the Lord, be near to the Lord our God day and night, and may he remain, maintain the cause of his servant and the cause of people Israel as each day requires, that all the people of the earth may know that the Lord is God and there is no other. Let your heart therefore be wholly true to the Lord our God, walking in his statutes and keeping his commandments as at this day. That's a great uh, blessing. It remembers God's faithfulness through time. It pleads with God's future faithfulness that he wouldn't leave or forsake us it pleads for god to rule over hearts through his like heart transforming power to incline people's hearts to obey it doesn't even rest on our own fleshly ability to keep the law but it says god may god actually cause our hearts to change which is um didn't really happen as much in the old testament but the promise of the new testament the new covenant would, is that god would actually fulfill this prayer and give people new birth and change their hearts to keep the law and have the law written on their hearts and um, 
so this is a great prayer with actually really deep theology knit into it and then the appeal is for god to be mindful of his own glory that he would do this for the sake of his servants as well as that the nations on the, all the people of the people of the earth would know that the lord is god and there is no other so he's appealing to god's own glory through this 62 then the king, all Israel with him, offered sacrifices before the Lord, and Solomon offered as peace offerings to the Lord 22,000 oxen and 120,000 sheep. So the king and all the people of Israel dedicated the house to the Lord. The same day the king consecrated the middle of the court that was before the house of the Lord, for there, were, there he offered the burnt offerings and the grain offerings and the fat pieces of the peace offerings, because the bronze altar that was before the Lord was too small to receive the burnt offerings and the grain offerings and the fat pieces of the peace offerings. So Solomon has to... Uh, expand the regular pl place for worship and for all this butchering that happens because there wasn't enough room and out of these offerings um, all the worshipers would be being fed essentially this is a humongous barbecue uh, where God would be worshipped with the best portions of the meat and the worshipers would be fed out of the king's uh, great worshiping Verse 65, So Solomon held the feast at that time, and all Israel with him, a great assembly from Lebo Hamath to the brook of Egypt, before the Lord our God seven days. So it's a long week holiday. And on the eighth day he sent the people away, and they blessed the king, and went to their homes, joyful and glad of heart for all the goodness that the Lord had shown to David his servant, and to, his, and to Israel his people. So there you have it, this great high point in the faithfulness of God, where God fulfilled all his promises to Israel. And we're going to start into a bit of the descent more, because uh, Solomon doesn't end well, and that prayer that his heart would remain faithful doesn't get fully fulfilled until Jesus is coming. And the greater than Solomon, Jesus Christ, fulfills these prayers. But uh, there we have it, one of the best days in all the history of the Bible and all the history of Israel with a great prayer for grace and peace in Jesus' name.